0: Thank you, Ed. If you're just joining us and haven't been with us online, we are blessed beyond belief to be able to go through the Gospel of John. Um, Prayer meeting will tell you that uh, I have no idea how to tell you how long it's gonna take. It's just that uh, I had to promise that it would uh, be a little shorter than what we've done in prayer meeting. But if you want an in-depth study, join us at prayer meeting basically we're going through it, I, I used to say verse by verse, but actually we're going through it word by word now. And uh, every, every now and then we get through a couple of words, a couple of verses. We actually got through three verses in the morning this week. So, uh, But um, leading up until now, up until uh, where we're at, we're going to be in John chapter 4 today. But until uh, now, Jesus, he's run the gauntlet as to who is included in this living, breathing faith that is promised to everyone who would simply do it, who would simply believe. Not a a faith based on signs, not a faith based on God's power, but a living, breathing faith based on a relationship with God himself through his son Jesus Christ. As Ed said, the promise to David is to us to be able to be his children, that faith, And the gauntlet actually to who it's available for is huge, it goes from the most pious of all to the most outcast. It goes from Israel to Samaria, even to the nations, to the Gentiles, everybody has the opportunity for this. And we've also read that the religion of the day placed the importance of who you were, uh, who you were to God by what you knew and what you recognized. Jesus now comes to be able to not only give to those who uh, believe because of their uh, rightness, because of their truth, because of uh, their good deeds, Jesus now comes to give it to the whoever's. The faith belongs to whoever. So as with other healings in the Gospel of John, and there are only two, and other miracles or signs in the Gospel of John, um, John doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to the sign or to the healing itself. In the other gospels, they spend a lot of time talking about the healing itself. For John, it's a springboard. It's a springboard into a discussion. And what John really wants you to be interested in is usually what happened after the healing. And like I said, I told you that I would save us a little time. And this healing of the paralytic by the pool of Bethesda, John chapter five, if you I said four, didn't I? John chapter five is, is where we'll be today. I won't spend a lot of time on the healing because we studied this back in November. If you want to take a look at our, sermon, uh, our study on in, in November 14th, I called it, I have told you the hearing impaired sheep. we treated that healing uh, very deeply. We treated it deeply that day. So I'm gonna, I'm just gonna breeze over the healing and I'm gonna get to the part that I know that John would have us uh, look at as children for those who haven't seen, if you will. So in John chapter five, in verse one. Verses one to three is the healing itself. So sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. There is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades or porches, if you will. They're, they're covered patios. Here's a great number. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. It's two words. It's Beth, which means house, and Hesed, which means mercy or steadfast love. This place was supposed to be called the house of mercy, if you will. It's two pools, uh, and, and this is a model of what it looked like. They were shaped like trapezoids, and if you look, that building right down the, the, the corner, right down the middle, that's the covered porch where they would lay. And it was fed by an underground spring and and so the water that you see in the pools actually comes from underground, and they built these, these porches around it to be able to surround it. And for some reason, along this porch right here, it, it, it became a haven for the lost. It became a haven for the paralyzed, for uh, the the completely down and out, the diseased, if you will. It was, And and so that's why now this, this myth comes about it. And I want to say the myth in verse four because uh, you don't find it. You only find it in the King James Version, the myth about the angel stirring up the water. And if you got down into the water, you were healed. We don't know how that got started. And we're not 100% sure of where it came before this story or after this story. But I can tell you the King James Version is the only one that includes it because the uh, the Greek transcripts, if you will, that the King James Version uses, they're the only ones that have that verse in there. I read from modern translations, so it doesn't have that verse in there, it's a footnote, if you will. But we talked about that, actually, in that other sermon, so I told you we wouldn't linger around the healing itself, okay? But it says there that we have one particular gentleman that interests us today. One who has been there, been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? King James Version, would you be made whole? Do you want to get well? He's been there 38 years. That's a lifetime. That's a lifetime of laying there completely, absolutely helpless at the whim of somebody else. If there is a man who knows what it means to have to rely on somebody else for everything, it's this man right here. He's been there for 38 years. And I know it's exactly why Jesus selected him. Amen? I know it's exactly why he selected him. He asks a stupid question, at least that's what we think. It sounds like to us that it's a stupid question to be asked to be made well. But we talked about this last time. He doesn't know anything else, does he? This is all he knows. He's known this entire his entire life. Jesus asks him, do you wanna get well? And I think what he's doing is, of course, he's opening up the man's mind that it can happen. If the man tells him no, I don't think Jesus is gonna refuse to heal him but he's opening up his mind. He's got no other frame of reference. This is who he is, and he probably cannot imagine himself any other way. Is he asking permission? Yes. Free will, there is this, but then there's this. What happens afterwards? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. A lot of people think that, G- that he answered Jesus' question. He didn't answer Jesus' question, did he? Jesus said, do you want to get well? Would you be made whole? I don't have anybody. I don't have anybody to take me down there. That doesn't answer the question, does it? so it doesn't really he doesn't really give him permission does he so if we think that he's asking the question in order to get permission to be healed we're not reading this right because jesus does heal him doesn't he jesus said to him go pick up your mat and what walk he didn't really get permission jesus just opened him up to the opportunity what he was asking him is do you believe i can do this Do you think it can be done for you? Will you trust me? And of course, the man must have, right? Because Jesus goes ahead and he does it. He's healed. What the house of mercy was useless for for 38 years, Jesus takes care of it in a few words, in a few seconds. Go, pick up your mat, and walk. And notice again, as in the Gospel of John, he didn't have to touch him to do it. He used his what? He used the word. He used the power of the word. Jesus is the incarnate word. He is the word of God in human flesh. The power resists in the word itself. It, it's there in the word itself. He doesn't need to touch them. He doesn't even need to be present. The healing that we studied before, he wasn't even near, anywhere near that boy, was he? All he did was speak the words. So we'll move away from the healing now because now, that the man can walk, the party starts. Now the trouble begins. Now is what John really wants us to be able to understand about this healing. The healing is, is almost secondary in the Gospel of John. John writing this story 70 years later, again, is writing it for you and me who had no opportunity to witness the healings. And he wants us to be assured that even though we weren't there, even though we didn't touch it, even though we didn't personally see it, we can be as blessed, if not more blessed, to those who did. Because John wants to concentrate on the words, especially Jesus' words, that happened next. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he what? And he walked. Where do you think he went? Well, later, he'll be, he'll be, he'll, uh, he'll catch, Jesus will catch him in the temple. He's been laying outside the temple for 38 years. And because he has what seems to be a permanent defect, he has not been allowed to go into the temple and worship. Again, the religion of the day said, you know what, I don't know what you did, but it must have been a doozy, and you are a big enough sinner that you can't come into church. So as soon as that is taken care of, where did he go? He headed into the temple. He was denied doing that for a lifetime, and now he's allowed to come in, all because of Jesus' word, by the way. Now, the day on which it took place was what? This is what starts the party. This is what starts the party. I like to call Sabbath Jesus' hospital zone. You know the signs, hospital zone, be quiet? The Sabbath is Jesus' hospital zone. That's his place. That's where he loves to operate. He hangs in the Sabbath. He fits he, he 70% of his healings in the rest of the Gospels all take place in the Sabbath. There are only two healings recorded in the Gospel of John. They both take place on the Sabbath. Both healings reported are. And I know it's intentional because John's theme is for us to know the signs. What sign do you think he is giving us by reserving most of his healings for the Sabbath? What's that a sign of? What are we supposed to learn from this? Hmm. That maybe our work should be doing something for somebody else, healing them, doing good on the what? On the Sabbath. I'm sorry, I won't meddle with you. I won't pick on you. If you don't pick on me. And so he said to the Jewish leaders, The Jewish leaders see him and they see him and they said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to what? To carry out your mat, to carry your mat. They are, he's carrying a burden, if you will. The law does say, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to do this kind of work on the Sabbath. He is carrying a burden. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. I love I love the guy says, I, I was told to. He throws Jesus under the bus, okay? I was told to. I didn't decide to do this, I was told to. They attacked the man for doing what they believe is unlawful on the Sabbath. And by the way, they've got a pretty good case. The law does state that. On paper, on the tablet, it just says what? When it comes to work, don't. That's all it says, right? So they got a pretty good argument. But the man says, I was told to. He knows it's not lawful, but the man must think that Jesus has some sort of authority. And he gave him permission to what? Carry his mat. By the way, that mat is the only thing that man owns. It's 38 years old. It's probably not the same one. They were, they were uh, uh, fiber mats, you know, they were made of papyrus. Probably not the same one. But you can imagine what kind of condition it's in. But it's all he has. It's all he owns. In a way, Jesus allowed him in this brand new life, which may have frightened him, because he said he didn't answer the question, I don't know if I want to get well or not. Jesus actually allows him to take his mat. He gave him his security blanket. Just based on the fact that he healed him, The man now believes that Jesus has some sort of authority as to what you are allowed and not allowed to do on the Sabbath. Don't you wish you would have learned the Sabbath that way from Jesus? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not putting down the teachers who taught me about the Sabbath. There were many of them. But wouldn't you, wouldn't you have loved to have learned it in this way? To associate the Sabbath with your healing, to associate the Sabbath with your, your spiritual healing, with your physical healing, with the miracle of being alive, which is what the Sabbath is supposed to do. It's to remember that we were created, it's to remember that we have life. It's also to remember that we probably should be giving it to others. And is there a better time than on the Sabbath? Is what Jesus is giving in the authority authority, if you will, to do. So they asked him, who told you? Who told you that you could pick this up and walk? And the man was, who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Jesus heals him and then and splits. He'll do this a couple of times in the Gospel of John. He'll either not be there at all, or immediately after the healing, he'll be gone. He does it for our our man born blind in John chapter nine. He sends him to the pool of Siloam. And while he's at the pool of Siloam and he's actually getting his sight back, Jesus splits, right? He's gone. But it's interesting, he doesn't know. I love the fact that the man doesn't know. John is continuing to emphasize the ones who come to believe really don't know much when it comes to the Messiah. They may know a lot of things. Nicodemus knew a lot of things about the Messiah. He knew every sign about the Messiah. He was a Bible student. He studied the Bible. He prayed. He was upright. He had all the truth about the Messiah. And Jesus said, You don't know anything about the Messiah. You have to be born again. What I love about the people that he's giving it to is that they don't know. Or at least what they do know about the Messiah, he's coming in and he's short circuiting everything they think they know about him. Especially as to what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. Remember, he's gonna get in trouble for this, right? You're getting get huge trouble for this. We're gonna to get to that in just a minute. The head caterer doesn't know where the wine came from in the miracle at Cana. He doesn't know where it came from. Where did this come from? He says. The Jews are upset at the cleansing of the temple because they don't know who he is. Who who are you? Who gives you the authority to upset these tables? Nicodemus doesn't know that that he has to be born again, but he claims to know what the Messiah is about. The Samaritan woman doesn't know who asks her for a drink. She seems to claim to know everything else about her church of the day. The church of the day claims to know, but the people that are receiving his healing and, and receiving if you will, the faith that it takes in order to walk with him and to talk with him, they have no idea. They're ignorant. None of them know. In other words, they're helpless, aren't they? And they're lost, aren't they? They're the ones that salvation and healing and blessing comes their way. See, it says later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. I love that he goes and he says, all right, you didn't believe me. I'm in trouble here. I'm gonna go, I'm, I'm gonna go tell him this is the guy. So not only does he, now he names him, now he goes and points him out. He's the one who told me. He's the one. Now, it, we, we, we looked at this before. Uh, was he a paralytic because, because he sinned? We, we studied this before. But just remember this, that God meets you where you are. I don't believe, I don't believe that God would punish somebody with paralysis for a sin no matter what it is. That's, but that's me. You know why? Because I believe in Jesus. I don't believe God would actually do that. But the man believes. Because the man's been told for 38 years by people who claim to know God, they've been telling him that he must have committed a doozy of a sin. Job's friends just want to hear the sin because whatever Job did, it's got to be way out there. And Job's argument was what? I don't know what you're talking about. So it's beautiful. The man believes he's committed a sin, so Jesus treats him accordingly. Treats him accordingly. So it didn't matter. When does it matter now that Jesus has healed him? It doesn't matter at all anymore, does it? It doesn't matter at all. So sometimes I wonder if we talk and we discuss the right things that we're supposed to be talking about. And we get a picture of God that you can't get, won't get by study or anything anywhere else. Picture of God by looking at the sun. Picture of God by how Jesus treats people. So he tells them. He just tells them. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to what? Begin to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I am too are working. Hmm. See, the Jews think he's violated the Sabbath. There are two possibilities. We're not told exactly which one. There is a group who believe that by healing the man, he, he, he worked on the Sabbath, and he shouldn't have been doing that. There are some who actually believe that the healing is, is a violation of the Sabbath. In, in, in Luke, when we talk about the man with the withered hand in the, in the synagogue, they believe that he's violated the Sabbath by doing what? By healing him. That's how they trapped him, if you will. They knew in the back of their heads that he was gonna heal them, and they said, now we've got him. Nobody could be Messiah if he violates God's law this way. I don't know if that's why they're mad at him, but he did tell the other man that he could pick up his mat and walked. And that is the greater sin. Because the, because the law states clearly, it states clearly in Deuteronomy and in Numbers, and I think it might even be in Exodus, if you teach something that is not according to God's law, that's serious. In fact, you're to be stoned to death if you teach some, somebody something not according to the word of who? To the word of God. And that's the sin that they believe he's committed. Jesus' argument right here, though, is what? I have the authority to do so. Because I and my father are still working. I and my father are still working and that's where the that's where they're getting that's the accusation that is going to get him in trouble. Jesus response to their accusation, he's simply doing what God would do. He works for the benefit of all humanity. He simply is claiming the same privileges on the Sabbath that the Father has. Both he and his Father are active in doing good on the Sabbath. I wanted to I wanted to call this sermon I wanted to call it uh, resting on the Sabbath is a sin. See, but I just I just saw your faces, and I'm glad that I didn't. Let me ask you this: Does God rest completely from all His work on the Sabbath? No. How do we know? We're still breathing, right? We're still breathing. We're still here. Because we don't believe that God just creates and goes away and lets, it, and lets it go, right? We believe not only does he create, he sustains, doesn't he? So rivers still flow, the sun still comes up. Babies are still born. Not still born, born still. Not even that, no. Babies continue to be born, right? That's how we know. The rabbis have known this for years. What made the Sabbath special in creation is that he was done creating, now he sustains. So God does not rest on the Sabbath. And I praise God that he doesn't. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Hey, 24 hours, guys. You're on your own. I need a break. And the river stops flowing and the earth stops turning right? So he does everything good for all mankind. This is why Jesus comes back at the Pharisees a little later and says, is it wrong to do good on the Sabbath? They know the answer to that question. They know that God does good on the Sabbath. So the answer is right, that he does. That's why they didn't want to answer him, by the way because they knew that he had backed them into a corner that they can't back out of. They couldn't argue that healing somebody on the Sabbath was good. They could not argue that it was not good. But it's when he said, I and my father are still working. This is what gets him into trouble. Imagine how profound the truth of the Sabbath would be if we approached it that way. What is wrong and what is right to do on the Sabbath? All I can say is the rabbis, and this rabbi from Galilee says, it's never wrong to heal on the Sabbath. Anybody's healing. So his reason is that he can do these things on the Sabbath is the father works, so I work. As I said, the Talmud says, God works on the Sabbath. And it can be detected in births, deaths, sunshine, rain, and the continued flowing of rivers. Jesus is simply claiming the same privileges that God has. And this is their reaction. Verse 18 says what? For this reason, they what? Unbelievable, isn't it? This is why they are going to try to kill him. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They understood that once he said this, he now tells them exactly who he believes he is. And why is it, why is it that they cannot accept it? And, and this is, I, I think this is the one thing that made our prayer meeting go longer, Ed, (laughs) maybe a year, is thinking of and showing about why the church treated him this way is that they use their own uh, translation, not translation, their own interpretation of the law to use it against him. Imagine using the Bible to tell God, using the word of God to tell God that he isn't God. because the Sabbath is, is, is for resting. The Sabbath says you can't be doing this. And pretty soon they'll begin to throw all kinds of things at him as he, as he continues to reveal himself to them as the Messiah. The Messiah can't do this. Messiah can't be from Galilee. Nobody, no Messiah's from Galilee. No prophet ever came from Galilee. Messiah can't do that. They'll tell him that he can't do it because he was born the wrong way. They'll tell him that he can't do it because he violates God's law. They'll tell him that he can't be from God and be cursed of God. You cannot be anointed and blessed and still be cursed. And the one thing that they're using to do it is the Bible. Bible. And so when he brings this up, all they can think about is this is why are they thinking to kill him? Because this is what you do to a heretic. This is what you do to somebody who is blaspheming. What does the law say happens to blasphemers? You stone them. You stone them. So this is the first indication of hostility. And it came simply because he said these words. I and the Father are still working, and it was the Sabbath day. So the hostility will lead to this debate we're gonna look at, and it'll ramp up. In chapter seven, they'll attempt to arrest him. In chapter 11, they begin to plot to kill him. And it's amazing, as they ramp up their hostility is because Jesus is ramping up the evidence that he is God. They get more hostile the more he reveals to them that he is the son of God. Chapter six, he'll feed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish. In chapter seven, he'll walk across the sea. In chapter nine, he heals a man born blind. Leading up to the biggie in chapter 11, he's going to raise somebody from the what? From the dead. By that time, they are foaming at the mouth that they want to kill him. So there's this debate that we're about to see, and I think this is what John wants us to keep in mind after this healing is there's an envelope to the debate. There's a, there's a verse, there's two verses that kind of envelope each side, if you will. And they both say the same thing that the debate has. And what's interesting is, is that if they could simply, after verse 19, ascend to what he's saying, the debate wouldn't even take place. So the first part of the envelope is verse 19. Jesus gave, Jesus gave them this answer very truly, I tell you, Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. So I and the father are what? Are one, okay? See, in verse 30 is the other part of the envelope. It envelopes, it's bookends, if you will, to the debate. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just for, and and my judgment is just For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So the envelope is the same. The argument is the same. The bookmarks, the bookends are the same. The son does nothing on his own, and he says, What? I do nothing on my own. They already know that the son does nothing on his own. Their argument is, He can't be the son. Jesus starts them with a debate because they know what the Son can do and then he wants them to conclude or we need to conclude or whoever's listening needs to conclude that he does nothing on his own. Why? Because he is the Son. So what are the works that the Father and the Son both do on the Sabbath? Well, it's kind of in two. For the Father loves the Son, shows him all he what? Shows him all he does, if you will. Yes, and he will show them even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. There are works that he will do that they will absolutely be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. The one thing that you can attribute to the father always, no matter where you find it in the Bible, where you find encountering him in Bible or in history, the one thing you can attribute to him is that he is our what? He is our creator, he gave us life. And Jesus is saying, I can give life too. And I'll give it to whoever I am pleased to give it. So the one thing that the creator can do is to give life and then also he can judge. By myself, I can do nothing, remember, he said. My judgment is just, for I seek. So giving life and to judge, to give life and to judge. These are the works that he can continue to do, constantly do. The giving life part, we understand. The sustaining life part, we understand. But the interesting word there is judgment, that that's what he does at all times also. See, these are all ascribed, uh, the the. the All of these things that you can also ascribe to them, they are all ascribed to the future. They taught that the Messiah is coming. Remember, he's come, but they don't believe he is who he is, so they're still looking where? They're still looking to the future for this. So all of these works, judgment and creation, they're still looking beyond. They're looking to the future, which, by the way, we are too, aren't we? But are we only supposed to be looking to the future when it comes to these two works, when it comes to the judgment? and when it comes to creating and recreating, giving life and healing. See, the Pharisees' theology was this. They looked at the messianic age. They looked at the the age itself, which, by the way, Jesus uses the same term, messianic age. The last days is an age, if you will. It's it's not a day. It's not one event. It's what? It's It's a period, isn't it? It's a period of life. It's an era, if you will. So, the, the, the theology of the day was they looked at the messianic age or the last days, if you will, before the Messiah comes as a steady climb, a steady climb up. We're just going to get better and better. They would get better, they'd get their act together, and as soon as everybody did, as soon as Israel got their act together, guess what would happen? Messiah would come. They would get their act together. Remember, there's supposed to be a true theocracy. They're supposed to be governed by God himself, right? Was that the case in Jesus' day? They thought so, right? Which is why they think they have the right to tell the Son of God that there's no way he can be the Son of God. Now there's nothing wrong with this except this. If Jesus is concerned about people Then in a a society, if you will, or in a theocracy or this type of era, if you will, if the church keeps telling people, look, we just keep getting better, and as soon as we're completely good, then the Messiah will come. If we teach them that, then what about the people who know nothing? What about the people who are paralyzed? What about the people who are lost? What about the people who just can't seem to steadily climb What happens to them? We don't have to speculate. All we have to do is look around, right? Because we all have known people that way. Some of us have been people that way. And they've got a story as to how the church treated them. We don't have to imagine it, do we? Are they shunned? Yes. Are they condemned? Yes. Are they persecuted maybe sometimes, even a little? Yeah. They're definitely what? Definitely excluded. They don't belong. Our paralyzed man didn't belong in the temple. He doesn't belong in the synagogue. Why? Cause. It's obvious how God feels about you and if God feels about you this way, then why do I need to feel about you any other way? My church is for those who are getting better. My church are for those who are studying the science and want to bring about the coming of the end of the age. I thank you, O oh Lord, I'm not like that tax collector over there. Feels pretty good to be the only ones favored by God. Feels pretty good to be writer than you. But this is why they're so angry because this Messiah wannabe from Galilee doesn't feel that way. And he teaches something different. Very truly, I tell you, whoever, what? Whoever, if you will, hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be what? Will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. He doesn't feel that way. He doesn't feel this way about the good. It isn't the people that are getting better that will be the anyone who receives.